Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. This episode is brought to you by Epsilon and their award-winning People Cloud Loyalty Solution. Epsilon has actually just released a guide on the topic of contactless loyalty, which explores how marketeers can create human-like connections with their customers in an increasingly contactless world. I would highly recommend you have a look, so to download the guide, visit emia.epsilon.com forward slash Let's Talk Loyalty and you'll find the guide in the resources section. So welcome to episode 62 of Let's Talk Loyalty. And my guest today is a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Hopkins, who is the founder of a company called Sonder. Now, Sonder itself is something that I will let Jonathan explain. But in terms of the context for why Jonathan is coming onto this show, I have to say he seems to be the only person and the only agency providing the kind of services that I needed in a very specific area of managing a loyalty program. And that is understanding the value of the asset and the media and the audience that you own as a loyalty program owner. So, I hope I've explained what you do uh, suitably well, Jonathan. First and foremost, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you very much, Paula. Great, great. So, as you know, um, I have lots of questions, including explaining your company name, explaining what you do in terms of valuing media, uh, particularly for loyalty program owners. But before we get into all of that, tell us your favorite loyalty statistic. Well, my favorite loyalty statistic is that a Solus email is the most valuable media asset of all owned media channels. So more valuable than a digital screen at the front of a store, more valuable than a homepage banner, and more valuable than a social media post. So, And when I say valuable, you ask for a statistic. So I would say we valued emails at over $250,000. Um, oh, that's US dollars. So, wow. so for a, a large organization with a large audience, a yes. solus email where, where you give the entire email to a partner, a brand partner, mm-hmm. um, exclusively, mm-hmm. um, is, is the most valuable e- email, um, most, vo- most valuable asset that we um, have valued for businesses. That's wonderful, Jonathan. And I'm hoping that changes in the future. Dare I say, email has been around for a long time. Um, and as somebody who's passionate about voice media, I'm hoping that we might be able to add uh, to Trump that at some point. Um, actually, d- dare I risk a cliche, Trump is probably not a good word this week. <laughs> well, it's funny, it's, it's funny you say that because I read an article once that talked about email being the cockroach of all media channels. Oh, my God. Goodness, <laughs> <laughs> which okay, is actually now. meant in a positive way because um, <laughs> it is it is long lasting. It is you know one of those few opted in channels. It's it's just really yeah. powerful, and we love it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love the distinction, Jonathan, Mm. in terms of a solace email, because as we talked about before we came on air, Mm. there are plenty of ways to support brand partners. And I'm sure plenty of the loyalty program managers that are listening now would put plenty of their partners into an email. But we all know the difference in performance between having a single-minded focus on one offer or one partner or one merchant versus, you know, putting 20 links in there and lots of competition for the reader's attention. So, um, 
So absolutely extraordinary to know that a soulless email for some of your clients uh, can be worth um, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So a brilliant statistic to open the show, Jonathan. I think, um, you know, probably in terms of background, again, so the audience understand what you do. Tell us how you got into this business of valuing owned media. Just give us the story. And again, I'll give my own um, experience again, struggling with the exact problem that you guys are solving. Sure. So my business partner and I both have a similar background and we used to run paid media agencies. Um, So when advertisers want to um, buy media in the the open market, um, that's what media agencies are for. Um, And we dealt a lot with CMOs and marketing departments. And our observation was that um, a lot of the marketers out there in the world spend a lot more time and effort and care and attention and measurement around um, the media that they buy Mm. whilst sometimes forgetting or squandering the attention, the value of that attention through their own channels. Um, And to be clear, when I talk about owned media, Mm. uh, it's basically um, a media channel which you as an organisation own Mm. wholly or partly Mm -hmm. um, that attracts an audience. Mm. And like I said, our observation was that um, it was like the forgotten child of, of the marketing <laughs> world. Yeah, it was yeah. like, oh, yeah, I'm buying TV spots and I'm putting posters up and yeah. I'm putting banners on websites on this X, Y, and Z media owner. But yeah. oh, And then I'll run it through my own channels as well, almost as mm. an afterthought. Mm. And we thought that really devalued um, the channels that this organization had invested a lot of money, let's face it, a yeah. lot of CapEx building up a website, a lot of CapEx yeah. building up a, a database of, mm. of customers mm. um, and so on and so on through to social media and um, stores mm. as well. You yeah. know, and the, these, this, these media ecosystems exist. Um, Mm. So all you have to do is turn them on, really. Mm. Um, So we set up Sonda to kind of readdress that balance um, between the paid and owned channels and -hmm. just really shine a light for these large organizations on Mm -hmm. the value um, of the audience that they've spent decades um, attracting and managing and nurturing. Um, And that has a value for for their own marketing Mm -hmm. um, specifically and also for partner brands. Um, And Mm. we passionately believe that Mm. um, businesses shouldn't be giving away this media because Mm -hmm. it's, it is quite sacrosanct. They have nurtured and grown it over many years. Um, So why give that away? You know, it has a value. Um, So don't give that to partners. So that's, that's kind of what we're passionate about at Sonda Mm -hmm. and why we set up the business. Mm. Well, well done you, Jonathan. And I think it's about five years I saw on your website. So Sandra's been around, um, headquartered in Australia, although um, your accent's not Australian. You're originally from the UK yourself, Jonathan, yeah? That's right. Yes, I'm English. Um, Worked in global advertising agencies out of London, um, always in a kind of pan-European or a global sense, managing global clients. Um, And then moved to um, Sydney um, and we've set up we set up camp here where we call ourselves Sydney based but we are a global business and we do have clients all over the world. 
Okay, fantastic. So the next obvious question is, of course, uh, Sonder. Please explain the name. And <coughs> listeners will know, and I think I said to you as well, Jonathan, I love words. So as somebody who, um, you know, uses words in my everyday work, I really love uh, when I find a new way uh, that language is evolving. So, so tell the audience about uh, the name, where it came from and, and the whole source. Well, it's actually a funny story. And uh, for anyone who's ever set up their own business with a business partner or has had a, <laughs> had a professional debate over words, um, they'll yeah. respond to this. Um, you know, my business partner and I don't argue very much, but, uh, but right at the start of setting up the business, of course, it's mm -hmm. pretty crucial to get the name right. Yeah. So after two weeks of toing and froing, no one's really happy. Yeah. Um, not getting there. My wife um, eventually <laughs> intervened because I think she was sort of listening to the arguments. Fantastic, uh, yeah. He found the word. Um, and there's a, there's a website online called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And um, it sounds quite morbid, but he's actually got a yeah. great collection of words which have yeah. been developed recently mm -hmm. um, and have quite obscure meanings. Yeah. And the meaning of Sonder um, is quite nice in today's world. It's the empathy and the recognition that everyone around you has lives as complex and as vivid as your own. So it's about being really wow. empathetic with other people and understanding their needs yeah. um, and not just, you know, talking about yourself all the time. For sure. Yeah. And that's pretty profound, Jonathan. I think that's something that all brands aspire to do and uh, perhaps aren't always as successful or not as visibly successful as they would like to be. But um, it is a great word. I'm glad it ended the uh, the one and only argument that you and your business partner have. So well done to your wife. You can say say well done from, from Let's Talk Loyalty. And also I'll make sure that we um, link to the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. So again, anybody who loves words will be massively impressed as I was with the level of intellectual uh, thought, actually, that's uh, behind the words that um, the writer is actually creating on that website. So, um, so we'll give that a, a bit of a plug as well. But back to Sonder, Jonathan, um, I think what really amazed me when we met, and again, just for the audience benefit, you know, I'm a, a very new media owner um, with a, an audience, which um, clearly I dearly love um, and nurturing. And, and every day I come to, to record interviews like this. It's with the intention of adding value to the audience. And I suppose along with that means that this audience is also very valuable. But for me to understand how the business side of podcasting worked, uh, certainly you've been extremely helpful uh, to me. But what I really loved as well, Jonathan, is, is the fact that a lot of the projects you started began, I know, for example, there in, in Australia. Um, and I'm thinking of American Express I've seen on your website, but then expanded to other markets such as the U.S. And I think my perception as a marketeer is always like, well, the US knows how these things work better than I do, or maybe the UK. But tell us your experience in terms of valuing media for global brands. Yeah, so the Amex story is um, quite interesting one. Um, and as we know, American Express offers has been for a number of years now the leader globally mm -hmm. in terms of how to do offer-based marketing and um, mm -hmm. customer understanding mm -hmm. um, and how to be really smart about delivering offers that are relevant um, to your customer base and, in their mm -hmm. case, card members. Mm -hmm. um, they are in a fortunate position in that they have access to their spend 
data mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that they can um, really yeah. tailor bespoke brand messages um, back to their to their card members. You know, for example, if you're a female card member who's recently bought athletic clothing, um, yeah. you'd get served a communication online in social and via email from the likes of Lululemon, yeah. the yeah. female yeah. athletic brand. So mm-hmm. for those listeners who aren't familiar with the program, that's effectively what it does. We started working with them four years ago in um, Australia, did mm-hmm. a complete valuation of their entire ecosystem, which covers all the classic digital channels like email, website, um, social, Mm -hmm. um, apps, and so forth. But also um, we even got into um, call centres. So when they're doing outbound calls to their um, card members to talk about um, offers with a a brand, Mm -hmm. that's effectively like a live read or a a podcast mention. So um, that also has a value. So that was quite a unique one. Um, But also through to their lounges, um, their entertainment lounges and their airline lounges and the screens and the brand collateral that they have there. Um, And so we we worked with them originally in Australia um, and then the global um, headquarters Ramex offers out of New York got wind of um, the mm-hmm. work that we were doing mm-hmm. and wanted to take it around the world. So we ended up doing um, a similar um, evaluation across 13 countries. Um, wow. And what we always think is quite funny is that um, they're a financial institu- institution and we um, we unlocked yeah. for them over a billion dollars in media value that they weren't oh recognised. So they, wow. they hadn't recognised and they weren't using that um, yeah. in their discussions with their merchants when it comes yeah. to the offers. So mm-hmm. what was happening was that they were just um, – not giving away, but they were saying that we'll support your offer through our own channels, but mm. it just didn't have a value attached to it. So okay. through yeah. the work that we did, they were able to say, you know, on average is about $250,000 um, yeah. worth of media support um, yeah. to, to accompany their offer. So um, that fundamentally changed how they went to market um, mm-hmm. when they were talking with the merchants mm-hmm. um, and it really drove uh, a wider interest in the marketplace, increase mm. the offer size, mm. yeah. um, and had some some significant um, business outcomes. So yeah, it's it was um, one of our first global clients, and um, you know continues to be a a, yeah. a great a great client for us. Yeah, yeah, it's a super success story, Jonathan, and a billion dollars of owned media. I mean, as you said, actually, it's 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 actually amazing that a brand of that scale really hadn't realized. But again, I suppose it comes back to the point that you you opened with yourself, Jonathan. There are so many agencies that help us buy media and very few that help us sell media. And that's really, again, I think what everyone listening to this show um, maybe hasn't considered, maybe hasn't factored into their P&L. But my own story, which I told you as well uh, before we came on, Jonathan, was very similar and also a huge success story. And I have to say, despite my own expectations, because I was running partner offers for O2 Priority in Ireland. So back in 2010, so again, even predating your own agency, um, you know, we were negotiating, you know, phenomenal discounts for customers of O2 and really didn't have a good valuation to tell them, yes, this Solus email, to your point earlier, is going to be um, worth X amount of media value that they wouldn't have spent or wouldn't have 
have had to pay, for example, for a TV campaign or a radio campaign. So I've certainly seen firsthand the complexity of owning a media asset and particularly transitioning into a commercial media asset. So I guess that that is that something that your clients struggle with, you know, when you maybe first make contact with a big brand that has an asset that's not being used in this way commercially, maybe just used to drive their own kind of loyalty behavior. What's your experience talking to brands? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and what we find is varying levels on a scale of, you know, highly commercial. Um, yeah. When you look at grocery category and supermarkets and aggregator yeah. retailers like department stores, mm. what we find is they tend to be more advanced. They tend to be quite sophisticated. They okay. tend to have um, customer personalization engines set up. They mm. tend to have been charging vendors um, mm. who sell the goods in their stores, yeah. um, either through co-op funding or directly as a um, yeah. paid media owner would do for decades. Yeah. So wow. they're, they're, they're at the one end of the scale. I think okay. your telcos, um, like you've described, and your financial institutions are probably at the other end of the scale and they okay. haven't recognised it yet. They're a bit nervous about um, overly commercialising their assets, um, yeah. something that we guide them through. Um, okay. But I think it's important to note that, you know, in the five years that we've been doing this with with massive global brands around the world, what mm. we found is about 50% are charging money. So that's mm. how they're monetizing it. Yeah. Whereas the other half, like the Amec example and the and the telcos yeah. we work with, are just representing that value back to those vendors. Okay. So it's okay. actually okay. not about saying, you know, we're yeah. expecting you to pay 250000 yeah. for this email or whatever it might be. It's more that yeah. we are recognizing that that has a value and that yeah. if we're, like in the telco example, what they tend to do with the Apple, the Samsungs and the Googles mm. of the world is, Mm. is provide an allocation within mm. a wider deal with that mm -hmm. business. So they will mm. say, as part yeah. of this wider business deal, we will give you three, five million dollars, whatever it might be, per annum in yeah. um, marketing support through our own channels, yeah. um, in store and online. Yeah. And um, you know, prior to us coming along, there wasn't a lot of compliance um, back to that um, partner in terms of. Yeah. Well, we're halfway through that deal at a certain point in time. You know, there totally. were, there, were, there wasn't yeah. a lot of measurement or understanding of, um, yeah. or proof of reporting that 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 activity was going out and learn to what value. So yeah. that's where we've seen big strides um, in terms of recognizing that. But like mm. I said, they're, often they're more comfortable not actually charging money yeah. for cash money, but it's certainly being recognized in the deals. Wow. And that's a conversation changer anyway, Jonathan. And that's what I'm hearing is, is what happened with Amex. So whether or not you decide to, to charge, and that can be a decision that changes obviously over time. But the first thing is the education piece, recognizing the value of your audience, the attention you're bringing to your partner and using that to leverage benefits, even if it is more benefits for your loyalty program members in return, like a better discount or whatever. So it really does put you as a media owner in a much more powerful place. 
Exactly. And um, one of the things that we've discovered is is most powerful at communicating that point internally is when you um, or when you when you get someone externally or when you do it yourself to Mm. to conduct an audit of your audience at every channel and you measure it as the media owner, as the media industry does in terms of impacts. That's impressions or yeah. fall impacts, eyeballs yeah. in the in the out of home environment. When yeah. you aggregate those all those up, and you put them in a chart next to um, paid media owner vendors yeah. Yeah. or traditional media owners, mm. what we find is that um, organisations are typically on a par or often bigger than. Mm. TV stations, website owners, newspapers, and so on. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's really quite startling internally when you show yeah. show boards and C-level executives those yeah. figures. Um, and it really changes and reframes the mindset of the owned ecosystem that you've built up when yeah. you say you've actually got more than the New York Times or yeah. you've actually got more than the sun in terms yeah. of monthly impacts across your ecosystem. And that yeah. really does really does have an impact. Yeah. And one of the figures I saw on your website, in fact, Jonathan, I know you work with Virgin Australia and uh, they mentioned that they actually own 35 different media assets, which clearly they weren't aware they owned until you went in and did that audit for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's a common thing as well, is that we have um, we have this wheel on our website, which demonstrates all the possible different own channels. But every time we work with a business, we discover mm, yeah. new and interesting ones. Like for the Virgin Airlines example, yeah. um, it was an air freshener in the toilet on um, on board, wow. on, on the plane, <laughs> that wow. actually had a brand on the back of the air freshener. Wow, my goodness. Yeah. But genuinely, and it's clearly not commercial, but I think the same every time I go into, you know, maybe a nice hotel and I, I look at the the brand of soap that's on the sink. And all of a sudden, you know, that brand just goes up a notch in my perception, you know, just because it's associated maybe with it with a high quality hotel. So I think it's everywhere. It's around us all. And as commercial marketeers, I think it's just a case of paying more attention to it. Yeah. And um yeah, we've done trucks um, for a supermarket. We've done cups and T-shirts for department stores, KFC. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, um, there's always these quirky ones which are quite interesting. Often the, the businesses don't want to commercialise those ones. They want to yeah. either yeah. give them to charities or um, yeah. keep them for their own marketing. But I think it's yeah. really important that they understand the value yeah. of them as well, mm-hmm. because once mm-hmm. you put a dollar value on something, it does change people's perception of it. And they're, yeah. more often than not, they're really surprised about um, yeah. the value of those those assets. Absolutely. And I think that's also a very good point that you commercial you can commercialize some of your assets, but not necessarily all of them. And I was thinking that as you specifically were talking about the uh, outbound calls example, um, because again, I think different markets would have to make different decisions on it. Some customers may be uh, less comfortable, um, you know, getting maybe a third party message from an outbound call, and some may find it very welcome. In my own experience, 
experience again coming from telcos. We tried a little bit of it, and I'll be keen to hear your experience if, if you have any from the American Express example. But for us, if we were telling them something that was genuinely in their own interests um, and had a bit of a wow factor, then they were delighted to be told. If it was, you know, a scripted, you know, oh, can I tell you about our other offers? Then it didn't work. So I guess it's down to the quality of the message, I suppose, as well as the channel. Yeah. Exactly right. You've hit the nail on the head there. It's very much about the customer data that that organization has. Okay. Um, and Amex are in a fortunate position where they have, you know, world-class data that informs their decisions. So, yeah. you know, and if in an outbound call center environment, um, we certainly wouldn't recommend um, promoting an, a third-party brand unless you had data that supported that individual card member was interested in that category or had demonstrated clear mm. signals or spending patterns in that category. Mm. Um, but it's a really important point. And, you know, one of the challenges we often face um, when dealing with um, brands who are looking to commercialise in some way mm. um, their, their media assets is getting the balance right between the three constituents. And we talk about um, the importance of having a nice, even triangle between those three mm. constituents. And they, that would be your business, mm. the partner brand in question, and yeah. most importantly, your customer. Because yeah. if that triangle is misshapen towards the partner yeah. brand, yeah. Um, like in your example, yeah. you're going to lose customers. And if you're losing customers, that A, that's bad for business, but then you haven't got a, a media audience in the future to commercialize anyway. So totally. um, that doesn't work. So first and foremost, that triangle must be delivering um, on the customer. It mm. must also work for the partner brand. Otherwise, they're not going to get happy then. They're not going to come back. Yeah. Um, and also for your overall business objectives. So mm. Mm. as an organization, you have to think before you commercialize uh, any media yeah. format or asset that yeah. it's delivering on those three um, mm. effectively. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's a that's, great point. That's most, yeah, most important thing, I think. Yes, and we're, yeah, we're certainly, we're not mercenary at all, you know. We've, <laughs> you know, I'm an ex-marketer myself and I understand um, the purist in the marketer wanting to keep their website and their email program sacrosanct. Yes. But equally, you know, we live in a commercial world. Um, yeah. CEOs are tapping loyalty directors on the shoulder and saying, okay, you've had a few years of this, you've built up a, a yeah. sizable database. Now what's the return on investment? You know, how are we gonna how are yeah. we gonna generate revenue out of this um, if it's not generating revenue back to the business? So there's alternate revenue streams of which one of which we represent. Yeah. Um, and also the customer. I think there's plenty of opportunity for like-minded brands to add value. Yes. Um, to the customers, you know, that Lululemon example, you know, that I yeah. gave for Arex. If, the, if, if they're spending in that category and they've demonstrated a passion and an interest for that category mm -hmm. and you as a business yeah. have the opportunity to um, mm. improve that experience for the customer, then, then why wouldn't you take it? Absolutely. And you've reminded me of a time when I was a purist and I don't know where I am on that scale at the moment, Jonathan, but I was the um, marketing manager for eBookers across Europe, uh, again, out of Dublin, but back at the very, very beginning. So I'm going to say in the year like uh, 2001, 2002, uh, when banners were the only, I guess, uh, media channel that really existed in the digital world. And I remember, um, you know, our, our C-suite essentially coming under a lot of pressure 
because lastminute.com was making millions selling banner advertising. And I was under pressure as eBookers Europe to take banner advertising on our websites, whereas I was laser focused on the conversions and the metrics for, for people making travel bookings. And I felt it would distract. So again, you know, with your expertise, you can see both sides and advise clients on those kind of things. Whereas this time, I, I didn't even have that clarity of thinking, but I knew it didn't feel right at the time. Now, I guess, as you said, times have moved on. It's nearly 20 years later. But that's the kind of thing that I think brands really need a, a lot of guidance on. Yeah, and you've, you're right again. It's those baby steps when you're initially considering it. I think the first step is to get evaluation and actually understand yes. what the size of the prize is, either for your own marketing or um, yeah, with partner yeah. brands. Um, yeah. But the, the baby step that we recommend is um, to start with one or two partner brands that are like-minded. Um, yeah. Often, you know, we're dealing with telcos or aggregator retailers who um, rely on those partner brands and they will have anywhere mm. between, I don't know, let's say 10 to 10,000 vendors um, that, or brand partners that they rely on within their category. Like mm. you know, telco example, they're relying on Apple, Samsung, mm. Google, mm. and so on to supply them with the phones and the devices. Sure. Yeah. So it's part of their business model that they have to give um, yeah. those, those partners some real estate. Mm. So to start with those and start having the conversation with those businesses where you already have a relationship, um, mm. often through the merchandise department or the category mm. sales team um, mm. within these types of organizations, that's where the relationships lie. Um, and, you know, you have that initial conversation whereby we've had it independently audited. Mm. Yes, we've been giving it away for years. We've mm. now realized the value of what we're sitting on, the value of our audience, yeah. Um, and we're going to we're going to have that value recognized. And like yeah. I say, we wouldn't recommend charging straight off the bat. Um, we'd recommend taking that initial step of just saying it's being recognized in the, yeah. in the deal. Yeah. Um, and then down the track, you can start charging your your suppliers, vendors and partners. Mm. Um, and then only when you're comfortable in doing that. And I'm talking three, yeah. five years hence. Yeah. Would you would you start looking at um you know, if like if you're a telco, a car brand, so non-related yeah. categories where you share either a brand promise or mm. a brand positioning or a brand mm. ethos, um, mm. or you share a customer base um, and an audience that is similar. So, mm. you know, we've worked with department stores who've partnered with um, um, car brands um, because sure. they've got a, an alignment and they wanted to put a car yeah. in, in their foyers of their department stores. Sure. Um, I think it was Tesla. There's nice. the brand and they wanted to borrow some brand equity off that brand. So, um, okay. you know, the, yeah. the, but let's have the media, let's have what we're doing. Let's have our audience and our yeah. um, store traffic recognized in that conversation. That's all yeah. we're saying. Wonderful. And you made a point as well earlier, Jonathan, yeah. about uh, particularly, again, back to American Express, they do um, have access to spend data. Um, but that's clearly mm. not the case, certainly in my example of um, of being in a telco. So um, is it your view that regardless of having access to the spend data or not, um, that it's equally valuable to go through this um, valuation process? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know one thing marketers nowadays pride themselves on is understanding their customers. Um, so they yeah. it might not be spend data, but every decent marketer out there does yeah. understand their their customers' likes, dislikes, profile behaviors. 
yeah. um, and it, it, it sufficiently enough to enable them to um, formulate a program um, that's going to be relevant and um, a selection of partner brands, you know, mm. it, it could, it can even work in a sponsorship sense. So, you know, if you're as a brand going out there and have some sponsorship partners um, mm. that, that you've invested in, mm. you know, obviously there's been a rigorous process to identify who those yeah. sponsorship partners should be or what events they should be. And yeah. more often than not, you, you're supporting them through your own channels. So again, mm. That's a use case that we often see is sponsorships um, okay. and those kind of partnerships. Um, and that's, again, another good yeah. initial, initial step. Okay. So I suppose that the last few things I wanted to go through, Jonathan, was, um, you know, the particular categories that, that you think should be um, thinking about this um, and also any examples from the loyalty sector, obviously, given the um, the niche audience that, that we're talking to here. So we've already mentioned um, Virgin Australia. So any good case studies or sectors that you wanted to, to flag and highlight? Yes. Yeah, so the... Um the airline category is an interesting one, um, obviously going through um, turmoil at the moment, but historically they've certainly led the way in, I think, what the US airline industry calls ancillary, ancillary revenue. Yes. Um, and looking at alternate revenue streams, we all know the margins in the airline industry are tiny, something like 3%, yeah. whereas yeah. margins in media, because you've already invested the CapEx in building the ecosystem, it's already there. Yeah. is over over 90% um, profit um, wow. in terms of yeah. media media income. So um, the, the travel industry has, is quite established. The yeah. other one is um, retailers and, and supermarkets spe specifically. Um, mm. for, for a couple of decades now, they've been working with their vendors um, on shared marketing programs. Now, yeah. often they will be cost neutral for the supermarket or the retailer. Um, okay. So, so they're they're the the home, if you like, of the the program. They might do a mm. partnership with Disney and mm. run a collect and get through their stores, um, nice. but it's supported by up to four or five brands, and mm. those brands are contributing to the funding of that um, marketing program through the stores on the website. Yeah. Um, and throughout paid media as well. So mm -hmm. they're probably, like I said, the the most advanced um, and sophisticated. And mm -hmm. some of the some of the supermarket businesses that we work with, I would even go so far as to say that they're more advanced um, in terms of their data um, capability, in terms of their um, targeting capabilities, than a lot of the traditional. TV networks, you know, the traditional wow. Media, wow. media businesses wow. um, that we used to deal with in our old, old lives. So, um, and the reason for that is that they have the customer data. So the beauty yeah. of um, businesses as media owners, you know, that concept is that you've got the close relationship with your customers. Yeah. Um, you've nurtured them over these, these decades and years and yeah. really understand them. Whereas mm. a TV network or a website is just selling eyeballs. Um, totally. So that's that's the difference. Um, yeah. And yeah. and also, um, what we see in the supermarket space is the ability to track and measure, um, and that is invaluable when it comes wow. to investing. So what okay. we're seeing now, in and one of the trends, mm. is a move from them only receiving what is traditionally called trade marketing money, 
yeah. or co-op funding, yeah. ad sub is another one, mm. um, into the brand budget. So what we're seeing is um, media agencies who traditionally have only bought paid media through mm-hmm. traditional media channels mm. are now investing a client's brand money mm. into retail media. So supermarket, mm. um, wobblers, um, yeah. banners, socials, digital screens and supermarkets, what we call retail media mm. is now starting to get a share of brand money as well. And the wow. reason for that is case studies yeah. and proof that it's working and not only do these supermarkets have the ability to measure campaign Mm. so you did a four-week campaign Unilever in the supermarket and um, we delivered 20% uplift Mm. not just that they can Mm. actually track over time continuously week in week out so they can say um, over the course of the year they can do partnership programs with these brands Mm. and measure the sales uplift throughout Um, every day rather Mm. than just campaigns so when you've got that proof of concept um, through having the customer data and having having that um, ability to to measure everything um, we're seeing brands that are looking for efficacy um, moving moving all of their trade dollars and their brand money and some of their brand money into yeah. owned media channels um, because it's working so well for them. And wow. with with the the other trend in owned media is digital screen networks, which are being mm-hmm. installed either at entry yeah. and exit points above escalators or windows. You yeah. now have the ability to attract people into the store. Mm-hmm. So you're not mm-hmm. just preaching to existing customers, you're yeah. also acquiring new customers through, yeah. through owned channels. So yeah. Um, with those two macro trends happening, we're seeing we're seeing a mm. bit of a shift into um, owned media. Wow, and and it's actually extraordinary, Jonathan, to um, to even think that uh, supermarkets as a category are, um, in your view, in many ways, more powerful than TV channels as as media owners. I mean, that's that's just extraordinary. But I totally agree with you. It's exactly the power and the proof of concept that you talked about. Um, and there's lots of people, I think, listening that um, if they're not already doing this, particularly in the supermarket sector, I'm sure they'll they'll be getting in touch with you. And I was thinking about actually as well, even the the context that we're all so familiar with, which is, you know, ad blocking and and just, you know, having, you know, banner blindness and all of these other things. So I think it's almost the newness of the channels that you're identifying as well. There's an element of novelty which will support um, commercialization of media assets because there is that, you know, point of impact, you know, where, you know, as you said, a wobbler, for example, might get attention that that a banner ad on, on, on a Facebook, for example, might not be cutting through on anymore. Yeah. And you've yeah. touched on another 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 really important point there, which is the proximity to purchase that these organizations have. So yeah. that's yeah. why we're seeing such um, fabulous efficacy in terms of driving sales. Um, yeah. And the other point there is, you know, this is a, a clean premium environment. Um, a brand's yeah. own website is doesn't have many brands on there, mm-hmm. um, and often it's a logged-in environment. You know, yeah. in, the, in in the financial sector, uh, yeah. you have to log in as as a card member, totally. um, and and therefore it's quite a privileged position for a mm-hmm. partner brand to be in your logged-in environment. It's almost like an exclusive club. 
Totally. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the value of owned media is so much greater than paid media where you're just getting bombarded with high rotations, multiple yeah. placements. So, yeah. yeah, that's an important distinction between the paid media world, which is highly yeah. cluttered um, yeah. and having less and less efficacy, yeah. and the owned media world, which is yeah. um, cleaner, premium, mm-hmm. brand safe, that's another one, mm. um, and, you know, well-nurtured by its owners. Yeah, and I was exactly going to make that point next, Jonathan. Um, for for brand partners, I would have negotiated with it. With uh, they loved the logged in environment because it allowed them to perhaps give a richer discount um, within you know a, a, a more private environment. So they didn't feel like they were doing mass market discounting above the line, um, and they really liked that it was um, only available to that exclusive demographic or those exclusive members. So it definitely um, made the conversation much um, much more powerful and the offer so much richer yeah and yeah. the partner brands understand it i mean they've you know they often cases they've been present in those stores or those websites or those emails for yeah. years and they yeah. they actually <laughs> what's what's ironic is the partner brands often um, give greater credence to the host brand's own channels <laughs> than the actual host Oh, my goodness. Um, who don't know what they're sitting on. You know, it's a gold mine and um, it's a really precious um, ecosystem that they should look after. Um, yeah. But it's really attractive to partner brands. They understand um, yeah. that importance of the connection that yeah. the, the host has with their audience and the understanding of that audience and their ability yeah. to direct yeah. them in one way or another. Absolutely. And I suppose as well, what it also does for, for the partner brand is they're safe in the knowledge that the host has already taken care of all the GDPR compliance and whatever else is necessary to have that nurturing re- relationship of trust that you talked about. So, exactly. you know, it, it's almost like I don't think there's anything else that needs to be thought about. Um, or maybe there is. Do you do you look at the, the privacy policies when you're evaluating the media as well, just to ensure that the third party permissions are already covered off? Yeah, I mean, invariably the organisation, the host organisation has been through those um, protocols um, themselves. Um, Obviously, we would encourage them to do that. They do vary by country. Of course, um, yeah. But that's one of the beauties of email is that it's um, opt-in. Totally. Which is one of the reasons why it's so valuable Mm. um, because, because they've actually, they're passionate about the category and they've asked to see it. Yeah. Um, which reminds me of a, uh, a funny story that came up with one of our clients who where the, there was a new marketing team that had just um, kind of taken over and they all had their different views um, about how many emails should be going out, you know, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is a big hot topic for, for sure. loyalty. Um, and I think they were sending around nine emails um, a week as a, okay. as, a, um, as a department store. Um, And the general consensus around not just the marketing team, but the whole of the business was that they were bombarding their customers, that it had to stop, that this was outrageous, that they didn't want it. And we conducted some research as part of our overall program, whereby Mm. we, um, we looked at the impact and the interaction and how how their customer base was feeling about um, about the owned media channels in, in totality. And yeah. we asked this question to kind of resolve it. Um, and their two target audiences, the, the two constituents who are most passionate about 
the business mm-hmm. um, and the category. Um, 73% of them said um, it's the right amount of emails that we're getting. Right. And um, around 15% said I'd be happy to have more. Wow. And it just says, it just shows you <laughs> that marketing teams um, are not yes. the customers. You should always totally. ask your customers totally. um, what they think. Um, and it really kind of changed everyone's view of um, of how many emails to send. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, um, you only send nine to the people who want nine yeah. um, and use your data to determine what those is. But if, mm-hmm. if you've got a passionate yeah. Um, database who are into the category it's fashion it's clothes I want to know when there's a discount I want to know totally. when there's a yeah. new release in what I in what I'm interested in then yeah. they were happy getting nine a week yeah um, so there's those kind of things that, that that shine a light on your own channels and mm. and you know really add more value basically is because you've opted in to see this it's a really passionate um, yeah. category and channel and um, you should treat it treated as such. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, on that note, I'll mention one final thing I saw on your website as well, Jonathan, which I think just um, supports our overall, I think, mutual conclusion of the direction that this business is going. And that was just, I wrote, I saw an article you wrote that uh, perhaps even Netflix would be um, looking at advertising and taking um, advertising on its own um, platform in order to, uh, to drive its own commercial revenues. Because as much as we all know that uh, we're addicted to the content um, the cost of that content, I think, means that business uh, needs more channels of income. Um, so, yeah, incredible. And I saw the summary figure that you mentioned as well um, of over $7 billion of uh, media value that uh, Sondra have unlocked to date. So, so that's an extraordinary figure. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention, Jonathan, before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. I mean, um, I would just encourage your listeners to um, treat their their own media ecosystems with the respect that, that it deserves and um, just have a look at it and just have a think about um, what channels do you own um, and how valuable they might be because our view is that they're extremely valuable. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, the, the media of the future is owned media. Wonderful. Well, that's the perfect way to close, Jonathan. Well said. Um, I'll clearly make sure that we have a link to your own website, wearesondra.com, and also to your own profile, Jonathan Hopkins. So I just want to say um, thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty to Jonathan Hopkins and wearesondra.com. Thanks, Paula. This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights, and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 170 executives in 20 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com and loyaltyacademy.org. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. 
Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews. And thanks again for supporting the show. 